welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. That sounded familiar to me. It just makes me break a sweat, I'll tell you. Uh, this is a friend of mine, Michael Brown, actually. He's got a CD of Life on Life Terms. All he does is go around the country and do recovery music uh, for conferences and stuff. And, uh, and he, and when I heard that song, I said, wow, that just sets the tone. That's what an addiction is like. I mean, it's that seedy sound. And that, oh, it just was, oh, it just really, really got to me. So... At any rate, I uh, thought we would, uh, uh, with that, uh, press on. Uh, let's say, uh, what are we talking about when we talk about this sort of behavior, uh, that addictive behavior? Uh, first thing I, I would like to do is to talk a little bit about the materials I gave you. Uh, this, I, I, want to, I want to make it clear. Sure, I've got tons of them. Uh, this, I don't want to imply in any way that this has anything to do with essay-approved literature because it is not. This is only my strength, hope, and experience and things that have helped me. Uh, the diagrams on there we will be going through during the talk, uh, and I'll be recreating them on the uh, on the whiteboard here so we can go through them a piece at a time. And the, um, uh, the little article in the back uh, was the, one of the foundation articles about this whole paradigm that we're going to talk about, which, is, uh, which were by Doug Talbot, who was uh, the uh, medical director of the treatment center where I went when I was um, uh, in treatment back in 1986. So this is an older article, but it, it's, the, it's kind of the groundwork for the neurochemical basis of the, of the disease. So that this is this is just uh, stuff that has helped me. It is my own strength, hope, and experience, and nothing else. First thing that is very important is is that that the, this work was done 
uh, with alcoholism being the uh, being the basis uh, and the model for understanding this. Just as we use the big book as our basis of understanding how to recover, understanding addiction came about uh, by using uh, uh, alcoholism as the uh, uh, as the underlying model for the disease. Uh, it and so a lot of this research has been based on alcoholism and has now been broadened uh, to incorporate a lot of other behavioral and chemical addictions. Uh, one of the things is that he makes a big part, a big point of in the article, uh, is is that disease is a is a uh, is the disease of addiction is a disease because it fits all the criteria for defining a disease. Uh, and on the last article, there is a discussion of that. It has all of the characteristics that says that uh, uh, an entity must be a disease. It's a primary condition and not a secondary symptom. There are physiological and anatomic changes. It has a recognizable set of signs and symptoms that allow us to diagnose it. Uh, it has a predictable and progressive course. Uh, and there are uh, etiologic um, agents and causes that we can uh, relate to it. So that that if you are in the business of uh, medically examining the question of whether or not something is a disease, the disease of addiction fits all of the criteria that says this is a disease uh, and it's not a disgrace. So just objectively, empirically, it fits the definition. Uh, and one of the things that uh, is important for that is that it... Uh, it has a set of signs and symptoms that allow us to say that uh, we can diagnose this disease. Uh, one of the, and, and I just listed those on the front of the handouts, one of the primary symptoms and one of the things we'll talk about most today is the symptom of compulsivity. Uh, compulsivity is simply stating uh, the repeated uh, use of a substance or behavior despite adverse and potentially lethal consequences to our lives. And if we're doing something despite the fact that we know it's harmful and are experiencing the harm from it, then we are suffering from compulsivity, which is the primary symptom of the disease of addiction. Uh, there are many other symptoms, as I said here. You have, you have a, a destruction of physical health, of emotional health, of social, spiritual, and cultural life. There are abnormal changes in tolerance, and anybody that's ever been an addict will know that the first time you used, you got a hit off something small, and it, it got more complex, and uh, it got more and more difficult to achieve the same hit without taking more and more of the substance or behavior. Uh, there's a sense of withdrawal or detox period, and there are blackouts or true drug amnesia. Uh, I don't know how many of you all have had that, but I've had certainly behavioral blackouts where I have lost time. Uh, just uh, in the midst of ritualistic uh, stuff. And it doesn't necessarily, for me, have to be uh, chemical. But the, the original drug amnesia or blackout uh, description was for uh, alcohol. I think it does translate to the, some of the behavioral addictions. So that there is a... Um, uh, a real clear-cut set of criteria that define this. So let's describe it uh, and see how we developed the learning that it was indeed a disease. Um, let's describe some of the characteristics as they went through learning about this disease. One of the things 
and I haven't tried this, but I hope it works. If you have uh, a person who has an addiction, it usually is a journey. It starts out when we use, then we will, after a period of time, abuse, and subsequently we will become addicted. Now, let's use something that is fairly standard, like alcohol, to describe this. Uh, and a, a user of alcohol is somebody that has a glass of wine and doesn't have any intoxicating effects from it. Uh, they may drink a, a user of alcohol may drink a, uh, a half a glass of wine and leave it on the mantle and go on. And, uh, you know, that type of person is completely incomprehensible to me, but they do exist. Uh, but... <laughs> Most of us are abusers. <laughs> uh, an abuser is anybody who has ever used alcohol to excess. Anybody who has ever been intoxicated by the use of alcohol has been an alcohol abuser. Um, and that came very early in my life, uh, by the time I was 12 or 13. Uh, but uh, most of American society are, are abusers and not users. Then there is a certain... And people who take the journey of addictions become addicted. And then the person who is addicted loses the power of choice and just abuses over and over again despite the adverse consequences. And there will be a progressive decline in their mental, emotional, uh, spiritual, and physical life. And it will progress on to death uh, if it's unchecked. So most people who are even addicts will start out and use the first time and then progress to abuse and then become addicted. Uh, and me, uh, this journey for alcohol took about, um, I don't know, 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> not really. I, I, did, I did become uh, totally intoxicated the first time I drank. It was in the midst of a sexual ritual, but uh, uh, I, I abused to the point of intoxication the very first time. So... Let's look at the uh, American society. If you take seven Americans, and let's, this research has been done for alcohol, uh, and, you, and then the two Americans will only be users. As I said, most of us aren't users. Five of Americans will be abusers. Now, an abuser of alcohol is not an alcoholic necessarily. As a matter of fact, four out of five people that abuse alcohol will not be alcoholics. You know, they may drink a ton and get intoxicated and finally say, gee, this is getting to me. I need to cut down. And they'll cut down. Again, I don't understand that, but many people do. Uh, and there's a lot of abusers that drink far more than I ever drank as an alcoholic. But they can moderate that. And I think that's the same way with food. It's the same way with uh you know, there's a lot of people who are uh, who tend to get into lust and then they leave it alone. It never has any adverse consequences on it, you know. Uh, but that's uh, those are people that are abusers. However, there's this one out of that five, one out of seven, something happens. And that person goes on and they suffer some consequences. They say they need to stop, but then they go on and they suffer some more consequences. And then they go on and they suffer some more consequences. And then they start losing things. 
And they start getting advice that they need to stop this stuff. And they start knowing they need to stop this stuff. But then they go on and it gets more and more and more and finally they go down and they die if they don't ever check this. If it's an unchecked progression, it can be and frequently is a fatal disease. So, for the purposes of this discussion, we are not talking about a user or an abuser of a substance. Because they do not qualify. It is only the person that continues to use despite all attempts, knowledge, advice, and adverse consequences that we're talking about. That is the person that fits the diagnosis of addiction. And that's the person that I am. That's what happened to me. And that was the person that I was interested in knowing about. So that's what this talk is about. This talk is about that seventh person. And you will hear people say, don't tell me about addiction. I knew Joe Blow who drank two quarts a day for five years and just quit. Great. I'm glad for Joe Blow, but he was an abuser and not an addict. Because anybody that can do that fails to meet the definition of what we're talking about. So it is not, uh, I, I, don't, I don't even discuss that. I mean, you know. So great, he did fine. Five times more people are abusers than they are addicts anyway. I am only talking about a person who couldn't stop. And so um, that's, what this, that's what this talk is all about. Now, the reason that people can't talk, stop is the, due to the first and primary symptom of the disease, which is compulsivity. And compulsivity was that part of my behavior that completely baffled me. You know, why couldn't I discipline myself and use just enough willpower to take care of this one symptom? I could do it in every other part of my life. But this was driving me literally to death. So, what we're going to talk about now is the symptom of compulsivity. And again, we uh, go back to the... Uh, uh, model of alcohol, because the, some of the early research was done in alcoholism. Uh, back, you know, I don't know exactly what year, but I think it was in the 50s, uh, a lady did a study uh, in Baltimore, uh, and it was a medical study, in which collected brains of alcoholics who had, uh, uh, who had frozen to death on the street, and uh, took them into the laboratory and did autopsies. Uh, ground them up and extracted substances from the brains and things that medical researchers do. And uh, uh, then analyzed that. Extracted a su substance that many of you may have heard of if you've studied the field of addiction uh, called THIQ. And THIQ had some interesting properties in that it could be used to experiment on laboratory animals. Now, one laboratory animal that they used was the, the, the white rat. So if you took a, a white rat and you put it into a, a cage and gave it two bottles to drink, one of alcohol and one of water, you could leave it in there for as long as that rat lived and it would never touch the alcohol. It would only drink the water. However, if you took that same white rat and injected THIQ in it, it would go drink alcohol until it became unconscious. Uh, so, they, for the first time, they said, gee, there's a biochemical factor that can transmit this symptom of compulsivity. And that it is not 
uh, it is not purely a, a behavioral and willpower issue. It has some biochemical basis. So, over the ensuing years, a lot of investigation has been done into the neurochemistry of what makes up uh, compulsivity. Uh, and that's uh, a lot about what uh, Talbot uh, has done. So that here is the model that Doug Talbot came up in, the paradigm, as I would say, that really, really uh, has been helpful to me. Uh, and, and the reason I, and, and this is all down on that diagram. Somebody drew it out for me. I didn't draw that. Somebody drew that for me and printed it up. This is the best I can do. But I'm going to write it up here on the board because it just helps for me to develop it while I talk about it. Uh, one of the important things to remember in uh, understanding this issue is, is that very broadly and very basically, uh, we have two components to our brain, the human brain. We have this big glob, white glob that sits up in our skull that's called the cortex. And that's... Uh, and that's the biggest part of our brain. It's where we think, reason, and make choices. Okay? So that the person who decides to abuse alcohol or to use alcohol, the abuser makes a conscious decision to follow that behavior. That is a cortex function, a cortical function as we call it. Now, separate from the cortex is another part of our brain that's called the hypothalamus. Now, that's the old primitive brain that uh, has been present for eons and eons in all species. It is also called, for the purposes of this behavior, of this uh, discussion, the survival brain. The survival brain holds the survival functions of the organism. So it's very important to see that this is a separate part of the brain from the cortex because we're going to spend a lot of time now uh, talking about this part of the brain. And this explained a lot of things to me. So I'm going to blow this up, the hypothalamus, and say that we're going to talk about the survival functions that live there. The survival functions are the six Fs. Food. We have to eat in order to live, and if you don't eat, you die and the species dies. Fluids. You have to know when you're thirsty, you have to consume enough fluids or you will die. Fight. You've got to know when you defend yourself. If a caveman was seeing the saber-toothed tiger, he had to be able to defend himself. Flight. Hopefully... Uh, if the saber-toothed tiger came at him, he knew when to run also. So, I mean, fight and flight are very important survival mechanisms. And if we don't have those things, then the organisms get annihilated and the whole species dies out. So it's a survival function. Feelings. We have to know the feelings that are accompanying these things in order to act. And the last one was reproduction, and we put flirt. <laughs> have to be creative, you know. Um, so that in order, if if a if a uh, species and organisms do not reproduce, then they will die out. So these are survival functions. 
And it's very important. It's, and it's important to know that these survival functions are more powerful than our ability to make decisions. Because we, they can override our ability to make decisions. One thing that I have that, uh, that I always talk about in this particular regard is that if you can visualize the stories of the sailors that are shipwrecked on the Pacific Ocean and uh, they're paddling around out there for days, they will ultimately get to the point where they're extremely thirsty and yet they have no water. Now, their cortex can tell them that if you drink that salt water, it's going to be fatal. But the survival function will say, you've got to have water or you're going to die. And there have been repeated episodes of this survival function taking over and actually overriding the cortical decision or the cortical knowledge that they don't need to be drinking salt water. So that we can look that even in healthy, uh, normal circumstances, uh, the, uh, the hypothalamic survival brain can override the knowledge and decision of the cortex. So that's very important. Very important for the understanding of the symptom of compulsivity. Now, how does this work? I always thought when I was growing up that the brain was this giant transistors and you had sparks flying from one cell to the other and it uh, carried messages and all sorts of complicated stuff. But actually, what it is, is it's a series of chemical reactions. And in this, uh, in this hypothalamic area, uh, the chemical reactions that go on are the messages that we get about these survival functions are carried by things that we call neurotransmitters. And the neurotransmitters are many of them that we have. You, you've heard of the endorphins and enkephalins and serotonin. Anybody ever take Prozac? Serotonin is what Prozac affects. It helps, helps mediate one of the neurotransmitters. And there's epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine. Uh, there's a lot of these things that, uh, that exist there. And what that means is this, is that as this system works normally, if something happens and there is a need for drinking water, one becomes thirsty, there will be a deficiency and imbalance of one of these neurotransmitters. Uh, one will go and take a drink of water. It will satisfy the thirst. The neurotransmitters will be rebalanced, and the desire for water will go away. You know, you quench your thirst. And somebody who is a normal eater will have a imbalance when they get when they get hungry, and they will go and they will eat a normal meal and will feel full and that will go away. Um, somebody who is not a normal eater like myself that doesn't happen. Uh, but uh, this these are the ways that these survival functions mo uh, monitor our behaviors so that we continue to live and keep ourselves uh, uh, surviving and balanced. Now, what happens is that there have been a number of studies done, at least in chemical dependency, that strongly suggest, and, uh, and there are other studies that suggest that there is a genetic tendency to develop addictions. Uh, and that there are lots of genetic trends in that. Uh, and I know in one field, like in the eating disorder field, 
I mean, there's something huge, like 80 or 85 percent. Well, it's 85 percent of the people with alcoholism have a positive family history, and something like 70, 75 percent of people with eating disorders have a family history of alcoholism or drug addiction. Uh, so that addiction seems to be uh, genetically related, and there have been many, many studies that have uh, have supported that. So that the model that I have uh, developed and uh, the way that I draw this, now this is my diagram. This, this whole thing is something that came in my head, but the information is not mine. Um, is, is that I say that there's a genetic engineering difference in the hypothalamus that I'll say A for addiction. And if somebody has an A for an addiction and they're supposed to be an alcoholic according to their genetics, and for whatever reason, they don't uh, ever use alcohol, they'll never know it. Won't bother them. It's only use and abuse of the substance or behavior that waters the and, and, and fertilizes the little seed that sits in the hypothalamus. So that this journey of addiction that we talked about, uh, this journey starts here, and then after a period of time in which we abuse the substance and behavior... Uh, the way I diagram it is, is that this little seed grows into a giant of its own. Uh, and that's when we've crossed this wall. we crossed this biogenetic wall to uh, have gone from use and abuse to where we are no longer have the power of choice. And what this basically means is this. Is, is that this little seed of a genetic uh, difference in the hypothalamus has been nurtured until it has taken on the power of an individual survival function like the other ones. And it has a set of neurotransmitters that it, re it responds to also like that. So that we get the sensation of the age-old saying, I'm dying for a drink. Um, if I'm dying for a drink of alcohol, that's really true. Is because in the hypothalamus, when one gets an imbalance of endorphins and keflins or whatever the neurotransmitter is, the message comes out over millions of years that unless I rebalance that neurotransmitter, I'm going to die and the species is going to die. And as they say, I have to do this. And that's despite the fact that the cortex may full well know, well, the doctors told me that if I do this again, I'm going to die. Uh, but that doesn't matter. It's like the shipwrecked sailor. I have no choice. This information overrides everything else. Yes? No, we'll have questions and answers after this. So if you have questions, drop them down, and we'll, we'll have a whole session, and I'll stay as long as anybody wants to after the meeting, and we can have discussion about this. So that we, uh, uh, we see that this uh, is something that is separate from and out of the control of, something, of our of ability to make decisions. So what we have then is a model or a paradigm that shows uh, why we are powerless, why we're biogenetically powerless. Now, it also explains a lot of other things. I don't know how many of you have been through treatment, have been in therapy, and they start talking about, well, deal with your feelings. Uh, if you've uh, seen the, the AA literature, it says, don't get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Well, why did they know that? Well, they, 50 years ago, they didn't have the slightest idea what they were saying. But, I mean, you know, here you go. Get hungry, 
angry, and you imbalance these trans neurotransmitters. So if you get a hunger imbalance of your neurotransmitter and you're an addict or an alcoholic or something else, then it might be that your hypothalamus reads that imbalance as, well, I need to drink. I need to use. I need to act out. Uh, so that by getting yourself hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, one is making themselves vulnerable to the compulsivity that lives here in this hypothalamus. They observed that uh, empirically over 50 years ago, and now we see that it does have some biogenetic basis to it. It also says if you've been in treatment, they say deal with your feelings. Well, the same thing. If you walk around with your feelings out of joint all the time, you these are generating uh, neurochemical imbalances, which could lead to the compulsion to act out. Is is that here I am, the only way to rebalance this neurotransmitter is to act on my addiction. And and so that it's very important to keep these things balanced. It's important to do the things in recovery that don't predispose us to be vulnerable uh, to this system. Now, why does recovery work? I, you know, I think that what we see is, is, is that there are many ways to rebalance uh, the endorphins and enkephalins and the, and the other neurotransmitters that other than sexually acting out or other than eating or drinking or whatever it is we're doing. Uh, and those things can be as simple as being with each other and sharing or being together in groups or giving each other hugs or simple stuff like that has been shown to be stabilizing to this neurotransmitter system. So that until we... Uh, uh, are able to become totally detoxified, uh, those real close interactions are important. Now that brings up the final point just about of this particular aspect of the, uh, uh, of the talk, is, is that we have how long does it take to get from a little A to a big A? It may be a very short period of time. You know, for... Drugs such as cocaine, it is a very short period of time. For alcohol, it may take 15, 18 years to cross over into this. And people may abuse successfully for a long time. And I would imagine that for the various forms of behavioral addictions of food and, uh, and sexual acting out, it will vary from person to person and uh, style of acting out to style of acting out. The important thing to know is how long does it take the little A to go back to a big A? I mean to a small A. Uh, the big A to go back to a small A. Well, we don't know all that for everything, but for chemical dependency, uh, the uh, work that Talbot quoted to me uh, years ago uh, said that it takes 30 days to get the chemicals out of your system. It takes six or seven months to get all of the particles and things out. But what it does is, is it really takes 11 and a half months to get a total return to where all of the neurotransmitters and neuropsychological testings return to normal. So the total detox, at least in the field of chemical dependency, uh, takes 11 and a half months, which is very interesting and fascinating since that the uh, early AAers figured out that there was something special about the first year. Is that after people had been sober for a year, they gave them a birthday. And, uh, and I think that what we see now is is that it does take that long to return the neurochemistry to its baseline. 
Now, once you get it back to a big A and you're a, I mean, a little A and you're a, a drinker, does that mean you've got another 18 years to get back that you can drink again? No, it does not. <laughs> uh, and I think that that's the misconception that the that the uh, that the dragons of denial want to tell us. It may get may take uh, 18 years to get back to get into it, and it may take 11 and a half months to detox, but it might take 11 and a half seconds to get back to the full addiction. And in people who are in AA, have heard all of the stories where you go down to the store for a loaf of bread and wind up three weeks later at the dog races on the other side of the country and never knowing how you got there because you went in and decided to get a beer. And the same thing happens uh, if uh, if we go down to the local whatever shop and decide that we're going to act out, we're off and running. We don't have any time to enjoy this again. Uh, so that once we get detoxed, we then have to stay in some sort of maintenance recovery to keep this part of the uh, brain balanced so that it does not um, allow us uh, uh, to dive back into the full-fledged compulsivity. Now, this is the, this is the biogenetic part of it, and I, uh, uh, I think that that, for me, was a very valuable piece of the whole story. And it gave me a great start as to say, you know, the first thing I have to do is to stop this behavior. I have to quit doing this so that I can detox and I have to take the actions of recovery so I can keep my hypothalamic chemistry balanced. I have to do what I have to do or I'm a dead duck. Um, so that understanding this shifted my paradigm entirely. I stopped trying to use my cortex to control what I couldn't control because it was beyond the control of my cortex. I started to have to take actions that I knew would keep me balanced. And those were the actions of recovery for me. Now, uh, after a period of time, I developed lots of other things. And I was talking uh, um, with another me member this morning at breakfast, and I was talking, I said, you know... Um, Two and a half years uh, into recovery, I found myself um, up at five o'clock in the morning, uh, hurrying up to so where I could read and meditate, uh, and then get calm, so that I could hurry up and then get to work. And then I worked real hard all day so I could hurry up and get to a meeting, so I could hurry up and get home and eat supper, so I could hurry up and call my sponsor. And then I would say, "Oh my gosh, I'm not going to have time to sleep," uh, and so I had to sleep fast so I could get up in the morning and do it again. And I, finally, I, uh, I was doing bizarre things. I'd get home and I'd say, well, I really don't have time in the morning to do all the things I have to do. So I'd start getting out my cereal bowls and I'd line them up and get all my stuff out. And I'd make my lunches and I'd hang out my clothes and then I would kind of spring out of the bed. And I would, and that, something was wrong with that picture. <laughs> I was not happy, joyous, and free. I was... <laughs> I, and yet I was clean, you know. I, 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 I was abstinent in my food addiction. I was sober in my, for my drugs and alcohol. I was sexually sober, and yet I was totally nuts. Uh, uh, so that I, I expanded this to know that this is a biogenetic disease, but it's also a holistic disease. Compulsivity is not the only symptom of this disease. It's an emotional, sp spiritual, cultural, developmental disease. Uh, and so I had to continue my journey. And, and so this is, this is the second part of, you know, as I say, Paul Harvey says it's the rest of the story. Uh, but it's just as far as I've gotten today.
I may I may have a different uh, rest of the story as time goes on. I'm uh, I'm involved in the process. But here's the way that I understand this. This this information I don't have in the handout. I do have this diagram in the handout. Uh, this information basically came from a book um, written by Sharon and Joe Cruz uh, called Understanding Codependency, uh, and. Uh, uh, and this is this that's where this information combined with Talbot's information is where this diagram comes from. Again, this is my own visual conceptualization of the issue. So what happened to me and how did I get to the point where I was uh enslaved to my own craziness again? Well, let's say I started out here when I got over my uh when I started getting sober from my addictions, which were, you know, drugs and food and lust and uh, all sorts of uh, dysfunctional behaviors, as I had said, that this was a journey that I had to cross over this biogenetic wall, which is where going from little A to big A is. And uh, it started out when I abused these substances. So what I did was is that I basically went to 12-step recovery and uh, and stopped using the behaviors. And I spent some time detoxing from that. But what happened was, is that I found I got into other behaviors. Uh, the first one was food, and it took me 14 months to get sober from that. And then I got into work, and then there are other things that people get into, and spending, and uh, uh, mine was just plain old busyness, I call it. That meant I was just getting, I was going faster and faster and faster. But there are a multitude of behaviors uh, that I was, I was using, and it felt very much like I felt here now, when I was addicted. You know, I felt, again, entrapped. And I was not happy, joyous, and free, which was the way I wanted to be. Well, what, what I uh, looked at, and finally the uh, the truth came for my myself is is that this uh, that I was abusing and I started abusing all of the substances and behaviors that I started abusing because I was responding to a generic quantity that I call pain and that pain was shame, uh, fear, anger, all sorts of different uh, feelings and pain I was using these original medicators to uh, to use. What happened to, to medicate? What happened was is that I happened to have the biogenetics of, uh, of addiction, so I became more insane with my medicators uh, than I was with the pain to begin with, and I couldn't stop it. So then I got back here, and I faced the original pain, and I started using other behaviors. Uh, what would happen was is that I would medicate, and then I would get relief from the uh, uh, from the pain, and then I would have a letdown. All right, so that the letdown would then require me to use the pain, use it again. So I would start going round and round and round and round. Now, uh, Bill Wilson, after he'd been sober at AA for 20 years, discovered that he was doing this same thing. Uh, and many of you have read any of the readings, writings of Bill Wilson. He, is, he wrote a letter to the grapevine in the 1950s called the Emotional Sobriety Letter. Uh, it was, it's in the language of the heart. 
if, if any of you have that, in which he described doing these things. And he called these things that he was doing his unhealthy dependencies or his absolute dependencies or his paralyzing dependencies. I think he describes it in several ways during this letter. Uh, so these were his dependencies. So this is not something that's new. It's been, it's been described since the 1950s by Bill Wilson. Over the years, we have uh, developed this a little bit further in our current uh, recovery uh, setting to where we now call them the coexisting dependencies, which is what coexisting is what codependency is. Coexisting dependencies are codependency. Now, what is the danger of that? The danger is, is that if we get into this cycle over and over and over and over again, it will ultimately give us enough momentum that we're likely to go back into the old behaviors. So it's very important for, I think, for people in recovery to get out of this cycle. Uh, and there are many people who are not addicts who are just codependent and they feel a lot like an addict because they're trapped in this cycle and they just didn't happen to have the biogenetics. So what is, this, what is the uh, source of this pain? Well, my, uh, my experience is that the source of this pain is life's experiences. <laughs> That's right. Most of, my, most of my life experiences have been good, but I've had a lot of painful ones too. And so that when I was growing up, I quickly learned that if it was not good to have a painful life experiences, um, that I learned quickly to deny and repress these. So from very early in my life, I started denying and repressing things. And I would say I was okay when I wasn't okay. Frequently. Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I got it. Just fine. And then when I didn't feel like I could cope with not being fine, I medicate, you know. When you're five years old and six years old and have already learned how to masturbate and medicate with food, it's easy. You just retreat and binge, you know. So I became the A number one all-American child. You know, I was the star everything on the outside. And on the inside, I kept heaping up this pain. You know, I like to say that I was traveling two roads from very early in my life. I was traveling a yellow brick road, like Dorothy, and was showing everybody that, you know, I'm a star student and I'm a great baseball player and an athlete and la di da di da di da and under, in secret, I had this whole secret life of black rituals. You know, I call it my, the black road, the dark side. You know, like Star Wars, it was the dark side of the Force uh, was leading me. And this, this dark road over the course of my lifetime developed into what I call an emotional abscess. Anybody ever had an abscess or a boil or anything? It hurts, you know. This is the pain that was driving me to do this, which ultimately drove me to the insanity of the cough syrup in the bathroom. It goes all the way back there. So, what's the solution? The solution is to get past all of this and to incise and drain this abscess like any good surgeon would do. So that we finally make the, this journey back through this to do what we want to do to begin with.
and that is to live life. You know, life's experiences is what spirituality is all about. As I was talking, living life, being alive. And it took me a lot of journeying to get back here. You know, I had to go through a lot of muck. Now, I didn't have to go through all of it before I experienced my first life. You know, when I first detoxed, I took a shuttle bus over here and lived for a while. And then I got back in here, and I got back into this a while. And then I stopped some of that, and I took another shuttle bus and lived life. But, you know, I kind of, I kind of periodically work my way through this. Uh, and, the, and the last is to be sure that I get rid of the denial and the depression, so, I mean repression, so I don't keep filling up this abscess. So this is the journey that I have to take. And this is very important to me as a physician, just as an aside, uh, because this goes on in a lot of people's lives. And I have people who come to me with other diseases, such as diabetes, uh, for instance. Um, and people with diabetes, and I can't seem to do anything about their blood sugar, it's primarily because they're involved in some sort of compulsive acting out with food. Uh, and that there's this giant thing going on there, and there's not enough insulin in the world to uh, to medicate somebody that's doing this. This is a monster that that you just you I mean you can't shoot it down with a BB gun. You've got to take this you've got to take this journey and start doing some of this. Likewise, uh, let's say diabetes is a dis- is a separate disease. There's another separate disease that many of us have. And that is depression. Depression is a separate disease process. Clinical depression. Now, to be sure, part of the pain here can be depression. And it's very hard to sort out which is which. Now, I think that here's, here's a very important thing that I have found in my life in recovery. Is, is that before I knew any of this, I worked real hard on getting rid of my depression because it was a primary disease process and I just had to have the right medication and the right psychotherapy and I was going to be okay. I didn't know that this was going on. So guess what? It didn't get better. <laughs> it got some better because, you know, you could get some relief from the depression with antidepressants. But as long as this is going on, I mean, there's a giant under there that's making me feel bad before I know uh, uh, know what's happened. So that that this is an important thing to tackle, and that depression doesn't go away with just antidepressants. Likewise, I think that there are many people who get into recovery and say that taking this journey is the answer to everything. It doesn't. It won't cure diabetes. I'm sorry. I mean, if you need insulin, you need insulin. And if you have a separate biochemical disease of depression, people may need to take that too. So that, so that this journey just explains the emotional and spiritual and developmental journey that I need to take, uh, so that I won't have to, uh, keep experiencing the lifetime of pain that I've had. I think it's very interesting to look at this model, because to me, it's very important to see the wisdom of the early 12-step people. What is this? You know, this is the journey of taking the steps. Most of the people did their original work and came and got here, and this is the work of steps 4, 5, 
six, seven, eight, and nine. Cleaning up the emotional wreckage of the past. You know? That's what this is all about. Is, is that if we don't clean up the wreckage of the past, we're going to have this abscess that's going to drive us to do these behaviors and drive us back to uh, the compulsive acting out again. So that it was my experience, though, that I needed some help to do my do my steps on a more experiential level. I'm a control freak that lives in my head most of the time. I did all my inventories, very calmly gave them away, wrote out all the things and said, yes, I've taken care of these steps and I'm ready to go on with my life. And I didn't do a thing to this. I mean, this turned out uh, to be and still is a gut-wrenching experience of actually pouring out uh, the emotional pus that lives inside of me. And uh, and it's it's a lifetime journey. You know, recovery is something I don't graduate from, but I get better and better, and I live life more and more uh, enjoyably because I am taking this. But this helps me. It's a map. It's a paradigm. It shows me where I'm going, where I am, and what I have to do in order to get better. Uh, and it's very useful to me because I know I have my footing. I have my uh, vision. And I'm not lost. I'm not bewildered. I'm not in despair anymore about what's, what's happening to me. And it's a, and it's a very, very pa- uh, pain-relieving uh, experience to do that. Now, it all starts, as we said, by I have to give up control. You know? It all started when I surrendered the cortex's illusion that it can control this. And that, and that as I make this journey, I get back to living life. It becomes a free-flowing experience. Life ceases to be a struggle. It ceases to be one crisis after another. It's kind of a free-flowing, really marvelous experience. Um, You know, I I like it's it's like riding a bicycle and you're gliding down the hill. Uh, It's uh, it's for me it's like shooting a basketball and seeing it go through the goal. Uh, It's it's a it's a feeling of the flow of of things. Uh, But I had to kind of muck my way through all of that before I ever got any chance to feel that. So. Uh, surrender is, is the key to this thing and, uh, and perseverance and discipline to take the journey is, is also a key. And I really encourage people not to stay into perpetual heavy does it. Okay? Perpetual heavy does it does not get us anywhere. Or it doesn't get me anywhere. Is that I take frequent vacations from up here. You know? I'm, I may be down here for a while and say I gotta go back up and live life for a while. Uh, that doesn't mean I have to use. That just means I have to live life. And living life is, is what this is all about. So, I, uh, uh, I think that I'm going to, uh, end it right here as far as the lecture part is concerned. And, uh, and we will, uh, open it up. Anybody that wants to leave, take a break, do whatever, uh, go ahead and leave because I think that that's all, this is all we really really have to do as far as covering the information. Uh, I'm going to stick around and we'll ask, answer questions if y'all would like to stay here and to have some. And uh, we will, um, uh, re- I'll repeat the questions and then we'll, we'll answer them after that. So, um, yes. Um, my name's Gary and I'm a sexaholic. Gary. 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 Yeah, I, I think that's, that's great. I learned a lot um, 
uh, new stuff. Uh, I'm also a physician, and I also share with you, I'm a food addict, uh, a compulsive uh, worker, and I live in my head. Um, and uh, I'm very used to writing things in flowcharts and diagrams and trying to, to uh, control things and therefore uh, master them by writing them down the way I've done my life. And I think it's, it's really a good, a good presentation that you've done, a wonderful presentation, a lot of good work in your recovery. Mm -hmm. One thing that was missing for me in these paradigms was God. Um, you hinted at it, at God, but you, you, you didn't put it down in your paradigm there. And my problem was that I knew a lot of this stuff and kept on acting out for years. And I knew that I was acting out, and I knew why I was acting out, and I knew about all the, the, the diagrams and flowcharts. But the one thing that I was missing was where God fits in. For me, my life experiences were painful because I was abused and continued to be painful because I lived life without God. And I didn't learn that life experiences for me could be a mixture of pain and joy, and the joy is present only to the extent that I let God in my life. Um, uh, I, I have some some doubts uh, on, on, on you know some of the yeah. genetic stuff, but you know I think it's a wonderful paradigm to get started on. And the, the title of this whole thing was, you know, why I need to surrender. And you know I think that that's a really good paradigm. But my, my paradigm now not only includes the disease concept and the codependency concept, but the fact that, that if I live my life without God for one minute, I'm in trouble. And um, I'd like to see and work on a paradigm uh, that includes it all. You probably need a lot bigger truck for to do this. Um, but uh, well, the, I guess the question the question is, how does God fit into this paradigm? I guess is what it is. And the and for me, as is as, as I said last night, that was a struggle. And God is something that I don't understand. And so I have left it out with with only references to the spiritual part of of finding different ways to uh, keep our compulsive behaviors under in check rebalancing our neurotransmitters or whatever it want to be that that infusion has to come from the spiritual realm whatever that spiritual realm is and uh, and uh, I, I agree with you there's no way that I can make a flow chart that adequately describes uh, what God or spirituality is, and maybe that's something that I need to consider. Maybe that needs to be the rest of the story. I, um, I certainly, uh, I certainly can, uh, uh, I certainly can relate to what you say. Uh, yes. Hi, I'm, I'm Doug. Powerless over lust. Hi, Doug. Um, I'd like to check something out with you, Lee. Is uh, actually sense a, a miswiring almost. In other words, there'll be an urge to act out, to lust. And then I'll realize, no, I was actually hungry, or I was tired. And um, I've, I've just recently become aware of that, that it's actually the, the wrong message is happening. I, I was needing something really basic, and instead I was filling it, I, I had learned somehow to fill it with, mm -hmm. with lust. And then my second part of this is, what I've recognized also, is that there actually seems to be an awareness of a physical change like it's almost like some substance is shooting through my body when um, lust or acting out uh, starts. Um, 
The, the question is, uh, what, uh, are there actual biochemical changes that occur during lust, and can they get uh, cross-wired with uh, uh, impulses to eat or to satisfy something else? And I think that the answer to that question is that in my belief and in my paradigm, it does indeed make sense to say that uh, if you if you have some neurochemical changes that are precipitated by uh, hunger and thirst or fatigue or anger, that uh, the addict's brain can read that as a need to act out in order to restabilize that neurochemical balance. Um, and uh, and that's that's what the the origin of don't get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired is is, is that there actually is a crossover into them allowing you to uh, have the compulsion to act out. Yes. My name is Jeff. I'm Hi Jeff. Hi Jeff. Um, last night you hinted at the fact that four years of psychoanalysis didn't work. Right. Correct. Correct. Four years of psycho. Psychotherapy and, and didn't sort of uh, follow up on a question that was the first question that was asked. Yeah. In terms of, as I've seen you diagnose, the difference between I've had that same experience, psychoanalysis mm-hmm. not working, and looking at the psychological aspect of disease, you know, of my recovery process and whatever. And God has been the missing element for me too. Yeah. How do you see this diagram up here, particularly, and maybe the previous one that you had up there, different? From what you got in the four years, like, cause in my mind, I'm pregnant and wrong. I would think you have to see a difference between this and those four years to be believing in this. Yes. Question is, how does this paradigm uh, have a separate approach than uh, psychotherapy as a solution? And the answer to that for me was, is that my approach to psychotherapy was to live in my cortical function, my cortex. And that I was getting information and searching out more discipline and more control without a emotional and spiritual infl- infusion to rebalance that. I mean, I didn't have it, it was it was I, I was working in my cortex for control rather than to attack the surrender. You're the surrender about. I'm the talking. Surrender is give up the thinking process and take go do what's got to be done. Take the action. Yeah, take the actions. Yes. Uh, when I submitted to, my name is Myron, I'm a sexaholic. Hi Myron. Myron. When I submitted to medical authority to take a serotonin uptake inhibitor uh, for depression, I found a, a tremendous significant change in my compulsive uh, drive to act out. Uh, does that mean that I could take a pill to do some of this? The question is, uh, since uh, since the serotonin uptake inhibitors do uh, do regulate neurotransmitters, can this all have a medical solution sometime? And and I think that there's been a lot of research and a lot of thought along those lines um, that uh, uh, that we can have a magic bullet, so to say, that will that will take care of compulsions to eat and to act out sexually. And there are people who have greatly diminished uh, sexual drive because of some of these drugs. However, my own particular belief is is that a lifetime of uh, of living with this compulsion and a lifetime of abuse and pain uh, will not be eradicated by the magic bullets. Is is that the uh, is is that they may be adjuncts to helping people 
at some some people may find up finding them helpful in the future, but that's that's uh, that's something that's coming up. You had a question. Yeah, my name's Eric, and I'm a psychologist. Hi, Eric. Hi. Along the same lines, I've been on the same thing: a serotonin inhibitor, uptake inhibitor, whatever, for about a year. My experience has been that uh, it has helped me somewhat to not pick up the drug. It's made it easier to not pick the drug up. But when I pick the drug up, the same powerful effect is, is there. I mean, you know, looking through the TV and suddenly seeing the sexual image has that same adrenaline rush. So that it, it has helped somewhat in helping me not to pick the drug up, but I'm definitely not cured of the power it must has over me. And so, you, so we're having an experience here that says that uh, that there has been uh, a diminished uh, impulse to actually start the acting out, although it does not um, not eradicate it entirely. And I think that my own feeling about that and dealing with lots of people who, have, who take serotonin uptake inhibitors is that there's a wide variety of responses individually and in how people respond to these things. And I think that in, like it says in a vision for you in the big book is, is that we realize we know only a little. We really know really only a little, and so we're going to learn more. Yes. Hi, I'm Robin, a sexual codependent. Hi, Robin. Robin. And I really like to address the uh, subject that was brought up before about the missing uh, spirituality here in your in your flow chart. And you admittedly that that's yeah. a difficult. Area. That's a difficult area for me. Yes. So you might want to add it up here into your circle as something that is definitely a need that we have for survival. You know. And uh, when it becomes out of balance also, this is what affects us a lot. Good point. I think that we really focus too much on what we see in black and white issues. And that the, the spiritualness somehow brings up a fear mm-hmm. of the unknown, which it seems that mankind doesn't want. They want to know what it is. And the miracles that we experience come from that area that is missing on the chart. I, I, I think that that's an excellent point. The, uh, the point that was made is, is, is including uh, in this paradigm under the, uh, uh, which says survival brain, is to is improve, is to, is to uh, put uh, uh, possibly uh, on the opposite pole uh, from the A uh, an S uh, for, for spirituality. Uh, because, um, you know, as I... Something that I haven't thought through in great detail, but uh, having having your suggestion here is a is an excellent suggestion because uh, as far back as we know about mankind, there have been there have been spiritual needs uh, and and have been have been coming together, and I think that that is an excellent point. And I really appreciate that. That's right. It's exactly right. Somebody back here. Yes. Yeah, I'm Joe. I'm Hi, Joe. Question again on the psychological part. I wasn't here last night. I was maybe you answer this. But do, do you see any uh, uh, importance to the four years of psychotherapy? I mean, what effect, if any, positive effect, if any, do you see that that has? That has for you? It sounded like you were saying it didn't do anything, or, or are you saying it did something but not enough? Or, in the, case? the answer is: What was the importance of, in my experience, of the psychotherapy that I did for four years? Um, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because, in retrospect, I really believe that the psychotherapy saved my life in a lot of respects. What it did not do was to eradicate the disease, okay? And I think then what it did do, what it did do is, is that it gave me the opportunity to examine myself. 
it gave me the it gave me a uh, an ability to be honest about what I was doing and to actually come out and talk about it and describe it so that when I did start the recovery process I had a four year jump start on on honesty inventory and examination of my own self and my behaviors I just had it in the wrong dimension you know and and as you all are teaching me today uh, the, the spiritual dimension is still an important part that I am learning about, and, and I'm, I'm continuing to try to learn about. Uh, yes, you had one back there. Hi, Alan. Hey, Alan. Uh, could you expand a little bit on the, the life experiences that you have up at the top of the chart? Uh... All right, the, the question is, can I expand on the, uh, on the very uh, general term of life's experiences up here? Um, that... Is a, uh, that's a very general term that incorporates a lot of things. One of the things that this incorporates is, as some, I think it was Gary that said, that life is a combination of, of painful and joyous and happy experiences. That is normal. And that my, and part of this is the root of how I handled the painful experiences abnormally and developed a, an emotional abscess. It is also the destination that I am going back to in which I want to experience my life as a combination of happy and sometimes painful experiences with the, with the spiritual healing to allow me to accept and to live that life. Yeah, okay. Uh, yes? No, right here. You're next. My name's Bob, and I'm a recovering sex addict. Hi, Bob. Hi, Bob. On your, you mentioned um, that on this, uh, this paradigm here, oh, I'm sorry, it was on the first one. Um, okay, you said that instead of using the cortex, we must take action instead. Yes. For someone who's used cortex or has tried to for many years, what, can you just elaborate on that? Like, what do you mean by taking action without thinking? I mean, you know, that was the same? Um, the answer is, the question is, what do I mean by taking action rather than uh, using my cortex to try to control? What, what I visualize myself as doing is, is that for years I got together, I got sat down and tried to think out what I was doing, why I was doing it, and decide that I wasn't going to do it. Uh, in the recovery process, I stopped trying to make those decisions and surrendered to listen to what other people were telling me to do. I took directions to stop trying to figure it out and to go through the motions of don't use, go to meetings, uh, get a sponsor, uh, make phone calls, do service, uh, accept hugs, give hugs, do the various things like it, it says, and then once you do that, the, uh, the steps in the recovery pro uh, program are the solution. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't get that. Hi, Bob. Yes. The, the question is, what is the biogenetic wall? Uh, and on the uh, on the first uh, a biogenetic paradigm, there uh, there is a um, uh, a little arrow that goes from uh, uh, the little A inside the hypothalamus to a big A. And when one transforms from a time when they're, they just have the seed of addiction to where it's a fully developed addiction, 
than one has crossed the wall and is is in full fledged compulsivity. And and that's the that's the way we were doing that. Yes, in the back. Hi Vaughn. The question is, what did we talk about adrenaline? I did, but I didn't write it down, didn't mention it. Uh, it is one of the neurotransmitters, epinephrine, uh, that we feel, and I think part of the rush we feel is we describe as an adrenaline rush uh, but you know it is one of the neurotransmitters it's also a hormone that goes all over our body and causes a lot of the heart racing uh, the, the tremors and the excitement feeling uh, and uh, uh, I think that it certainly does in many people uh, play a role in that because I remember that during some of my acting out uh, uh, rituals, I trembled and shook so badly that I could almost uh, not follow through. Uh, it was it was such a uh, uh, such a highly charged time in my adrenaline outpouring. Uh, yes, we have one. Yeah, hi, my name is Michael. I'm a psychologist. Hi, Michael. Hi, Michael. I wanted to comment on on uh, where spirituality might fit. All right, I'm, I'm listening. <laughs> uh, going back to your uh, original chart, the biogenetics and addiction, the uh, the cortex, uh, the cortex is deluded in thinking that uh, by thinking it can control the addiction cycle via reason. Uh, now our experience is unanimous. This is a spiritual problem. Uh, it is only. In, in, in Western tradition, we view the person as uh, body, soul, and mind. Well, it's only the mind that thinks that the mind is that important. Yeah. And uh, what this woman suggested, I believe, is absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. That a, uh, an unbalance in one's spirituality uh, can also set off a sort of thing. The mind's addiction is to believe that the mind can can correct an imbalance in spirituality. Right. And that one literally needs to leave the Western mind-centered mode of thought into something that addresses a spiritual view of the person in order to correct a spiritual problem. So what I hear you're saying is something more attuned to the meditation types of things that are done in possibly the Eastern religions. Yeah, and I, and, and that may be, that's, uh, that's the... Yeah, well, that's right. That's right. Uh, gee whiz. I'm trying to figure somebody who hadn't had a chance to ask a question. I was... Okay, hi, I'm Peter. I'm a sexaholic. Hi, Peter. Sort of along the theme of where does God fit into this. You know, for me, I guess, you know, as you were drawing this, my reaction automatically is, oh, good, now I have a map. Now I don't need my higher power because it's all mapped out for me, and who needs him? And, you know, I guess for me, what I can see is, you know, where I need my higher power is, okay, what does this mean for me today? You know, I mean, one thing I really can relate to is that darn circle right in the very center of the drawing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what does it mean for me today to take the actions that I need today? And, and there's no way I can have either the knowledge on my own or the power to do it without, without involvement of God on a daily basis. And I guess that's how I 
how I can see my experience maybe trying to apply God to this you know paradigm. Yeah, I think that uh, the, the the comment is 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 that God uh, is really necessary to be kind of the energy for the for the actions and to and to drive it. Is it, I, I'm not sure if, that you need that on a daily basis to to keep going. Hi, I'm Brian. Hi, Brian. A couple comments or questions. Um, One thing you started to kind of get to, and I'm not sure if you were going there with it or not, but um, I had, along with um, getting involved with SA and and coming to real acceptance of it, I was also having a lot of trouble all of a sudden with panic attacks and anxiety. And one of the things that I uh, taken out of my system is caffeine. To me, that you know, that just puts you in a state of mind. And I I know it's affected me with the addiction and, and with the panic that. Just put you in this heightened state, this yeah. nervous state, which I'm fairly a nervous person anyway. But just to have that cl- cleansed out of your system, it seems to lower that scale. Do you find that to be... The question, the question is, does caffeine help uh, improve the overall situation? And I, I have found that uh, minimizing all mood-altering experiences helps, and some people respond differently to caffeine than others. And, um, and I think that that has to be an individual thing. Yes. Back at the beginning about uh, the point of change of paradigm of the difference between change of attitude, I'll call it, between it's a disease and not a disgrace, I would consider that kind of a spiritual awakening. I was just wondering how long it took you to get to that point in recovery and if you slip in and out of it even today. The question is, how long did it take to get to the point where I believe this is a disease and not a disgrace? And do I slip in and out of it? And And the answer to the second part of it is yes. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's the reason it helps me to do this for you all and for me, is, is that I need to hear it, uh, and I need to, re, I need to re-emphasize it. Uh, the, it took me uh, probably a fairly short period of time because I was given the opportunity to go to a treatment center where this was the actual central point of... Uh, of the beginning of this, you know, we we talked about this as we're going to approach this as a disease, and this model was given to me within the first two two weeks uh, that I was in recovery. So that I had a, I had a, the exposure to this, and it felt better as I went along. But then I, I yeah, I I kind of go, come and go with that. Yeah, you had one other thing. I meant, what it really meant to say is the difference between my cortex and my heart. When did you get it in your heart compared to your like cortex? Oh, that, com- that comes and goes. That okay. comes and goes. Uh, and I think that I'm better than I was about two and a half years into recovery when I really did some gut-wrenching work uh, and, and started draining the emotional abscess some. I got more and more in my heart then. Yes. Eric. One thing I wanted to comment on on the hunger situation, uh, the God hunger. I I had had God in my life from age 14 on. I was deeply religious. I was you know, running Bible studies one night and picking up prostitutes the next night. So I had the God aspect in there. Um, what what I didn't understand, and I think that's where this this helps me a lot, is is a, I didn't understand what lust. I, I knew that I was acting out. I didn't know lust was the problem. Yeah. And when I heard Jess's tape about lust being the only issue, that's when it suddenly clicked. That's what I've been trying to stop. But I, I had no idea that that, in fact, had become my God, even though I thought I had a God. Yeah. Mm. And, it, and it is. It's the opposite pole on this model 
that Robin uh, proposed, it would be the opposite pole. The A would be the opposite pole of the spirituality. And that, I think that was, that's a very, very good suggestion, and I appreciate it. Listen, you all have taught me more than, uh, than I'm sure I taught you all today, and I'm glad to, glad to be here. Let's, let's clear the room so that the next, next group will have a chance to get here. I'll be glad to be around. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.